Well, I think we should move on. Just to quote Abraham Lincoln, who said that, you know, most people can handle adversity, okay, but if you really want to see somebody's character, give them power. Yes. So, but uh, the um, second pillar of liberty we're going to uh, hear about is from Keith Winshuttle, and that's freedom of the press, which is, I think, uh, something that surprisingly, to surprise me anyway, is um, uh, up for grabs now in a way that it hasn't been for in the West for quite a while. Thank you, Roger. I actually titled my paper The Future of the Press. Um, so it's full of um, speculation and things that might or might not happen, which will give everyone uh, the opportunity to profess on things. But, um, but what I want to argue is the future of the press is, is critical to all liberal democratic societies because the press, and I don't mean television, I mean the press, is still our most important source of political and social news. Um, by the press, I mean the morning and the mostly broadsheet dailies uh, in the large capital cities of most Western countries. Of course, the morning newspapers no longer have anything like the largest audiences of the news media. Uh, they're dwarfed especially by television, but by and large, they still set the agenda that most of the others follow. Their, their editors decide what are the main news stories of the day that people read, and they provide the editorial framework or the agenda within which both the older and the newer media operate. Most of the lineup for evening television news, for instance, still comes from the contents, the contents of that morning's broadsheet. And talk show hosts, shock jocks, bloggers, and the rest of the media commentariat uh, mostly take their cues from stories that have been defined <coughs> as important and interesting by the daily press. And the reason for this is that the morning newspapers still employ the greatest concentration of journalists who do the research that makes the news. These journalists go out every day, see what happens, hear what people say, and they write it up. And their research gives their editors a far greater pool of story material than anyone else uh, from which to select the daily news. And, so, and the journalism of reporters and editors on the morning newspapers still remains the first draft of history. And that's why the current financial crisis in the capital city press is also a cultural crisis. The great volume of news research produced by these papers can no longer be afforded. It, it, sorry, um, if the great volume of news research produced by these papers can no longer be afforded, then the principal source of information about the workings of our societies and governments will be seriously eroded. So it's important to uh, understand why they're in financial trouble. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, there was even then a long-term decline in newspaper circulation and advertising revenue in many Western countries. Um, and by the end of the 1980s, uh, competition from television news killed off the afternoon newspapers in almost all capital cities. Morning newspaper circulation also fell. And in fact, if you look at the figures, in an era of substantial population growth in the 50s, 60s and 70s uh, in, in the West, um, the um, newspaper sales fell not just relative to um, the population, but in absolute terms. What saved the day was that most morning newspapers retreated to a smaller but better educated and more highly paid readership, the A and B demographic groups, for whom they could charge higher advertising rates. Uh, this option was not open to the afternoon tabloid newspapers. Uh, and I'm talking here um, for the moment mainly about newspapers in the United States and Australia, especially those that serve the major capital cities. Uh, in Britain, where the London newspapers are also national newspapers, the situation is different, but I'll come to that later. In, in the last two decades, the circulation of the surviving newspapers has depended on how well they adjusted to their more educated readerships. The advent of the internet saw those newspapers that were dependent on classified advertising, especially employment and job ads, 
um, uh, lose much of their revenue to online competitors. But at the same time, they enjoyed expanded advertising for lifestyle products and services and luxury goods for their more well-heeled buyers. The real problem has not been competition from the internet, but well, I would argue the quality of newspaper journalism, or more accurately, more accurately, the politics of, of journalism. Some of the most prominent of these newspapers have been turned into radical versions of their former selves, openly promoting leftist political parties and causes, and in the process shedding their conservative readership to such an extent that the future of the organisation has been put at risk. In the United States, the best analysis of, of this problem I've read is William McGowan's book published uh, by Encamer Books in 2010, Grey Lady Down, what, what the decline fall of the New York Times means for America. McGowan, in, in my view, makes a very convincing case that the New York Times' failure to correct its political bias towards the left, combined with the post-2008 global financial crisis and some bad calls in policy towards the internet, turned into a crisis of existential proportions for that newspaper. The real problem at the Times, he argues, and I'm quoting, uh, was, that the, was the armaments of political correctness that crowded its newsroom, the subtle and not-so-subtle anti-Americanism, anti-bourgeois hauteur, hypersensitivity towards victim groups, double standards, <coughs> historical shyness, intellectual dishonesty, cultural relativism, moral righteousness, and sanctimony, unquote. A good line. In case you think I'm, I'm being biased here, because uh, our host at this conference, uh, uh, one of our hosts, Roger Kimball, is, is, um, is, is McGowan's publisher, um, there's, there is, uh, in fact, um, in, in July, last July, uh, uh, the Arthur Brisbane, who was the New York Times called, a position called public editor, he's sort of an ombudsman. If you want to, you've got to complain about the New York Times, you go to. Um, you go to uh, Brisbane and he writes commentaries about the, the quality of the newspaper. Um, but he wrote a farewell piece and he saved it to the last before he, <laughs> before he moved on. But he said, uh, I mean, he made a pretty damaging critique of the newspaper itself, very much in McGowan's terms. And I'll quote him Across the paper's many departments, so many share a kind of political and cultural progressivism that this worldview virtually bleeds through the fabric of the times. As a result, developments like the Occupy movement and gay marriage seem almost to erupt in the times, overloved and undermanaged, more like causes than news subjects. Unquote. Now, uh, William McGowan makes it clear that the Times shift to the left was actually led by its publisher since 1991, Arthur Salzberger Jr., who enshrined within his organisation and the people he employed the ideology of the 1960s generation from which he came. Uh, radical advocacy, identity politics, and he even introduced something I'd never heard of before, New Age Management Theory. <laughs> now, but even on newspapers without a countercultural proprietor, there's an underlying problem. The bureaucracies needed to run daily newspapers are susceptible to staff capture. In the last 30 years, on those newspaper companies not controlled by traditional owners, but run by boards composed mainly of the biggest stockholders, the autonomy that's essential for journalists and editors to do their job uh, do their job has been exploited by the left. Once they reached a critical mass in the organisation, leftists recruited others sharing their political and cultural beliefs. And they proceeded to impose the cultural values of the left onto the entire editorial output. Um, this the same thing happened in, in, in universities, in my experience, which is why 
I got out and people like me got out of universities. Um, now, in the, in, the, in the newspapers, this did not prove to be a successful business model because it is, it is strange that at least half of the newspaper's potential readership, the conservative half, guaranteeing their circulations would continue to fall. And today it's clear that in, in terms of the business prospects of newspapers, these values have been a total disaster. And the stock market price of the Times, New York Times fell from $54 in 2002, 10 years ago, to $7.80 in July of this year. Wow. Um, in, the, in the late 1990s, I spent um, a few weeks in Boston and, and for a while bought the Boston Globe every morning. And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I, I found this leftist bias so audacious that, you know, <laughs> I had to give it up. And, and, uh, and later I saw I was not alone, that um, it, it shed, was shedding uh, um, readers in droves. Um, in 1993, the New York Times had bought the Boston Globe for $1.1 billion, but today stock market analysts put its value at just $94 million. And, uh, and the Audit Bureau Circulation Surveys no longer list the Boston Globe among its top 25 American, top 25 selling American newspapers. Uh, one of the qualities of good newspaper reporting is drama, but in Boston the most loyal leftist readers must uh, have seen, has nonetheless become very bored with the predictability of the stories their newspaper ran and the angles it took. Uh, my favourite example is a story from, from 2005 about a seal hunt in Nova Scotia, which took the familiar line that the white male seal hunters were all bad and the environmentally friendly, innocent and cute-looking seals were all good. <laughs> uh, the journalist concerned, who incidentally was a, a former New York Times reporter named Barbara Stewart, she reported the number of boats in the hunt and gave gruesome descriptions of the killings, described the anguish of the green protesters who were trying to stop the slaughter. Uh, the truth is she wasn't even there uh, and, and did not even know that the hunt had been put off. You know. <laughs> that she could write it before the hunt had even begun. And, and, and beautifully, her employer, the Boston Globe, published her account of what happened on the same morning before the hunters even left the, sh the, the shore. Um, it's, it's not that these newspapers have lost most of their loyal readers. There, there, are, there are many people today in the A and B demographic groups who are, who are leftists, especially in the major cities. And another, shock, another cultural shock for me was going to the Metropolitan Opera in New York a few years ago um, uh, and, and looking at uh, the very elegant women in beautiful clothes and dripping with jewellery uh, alongside campaign badges for John Kerry, which um, <laughs> seemed uh, most incongruous. Um, so there's still a leftist market for newspapers, but it's not big enough. Um, and if you've got a newspaper that offers nothing to conservative readers, and which actually insults their intelligence most days, you cannot generate enough readers to properly sustain a morning broadsheet, at least not in America. And the situation in Australia is almost a replica of the United States. The 170-year-old Fairfax newspaper group now appears to be on its last legs. It once dominated the country's two major cities with the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age. Conrad Black's Hollinger Group bought a, a major shareholding in 1993, but uh, sadly, and for, for both Black and for the uh, newspaper readers in Australia, government ownership regulations forced him to sell up. 
private equity investors took over and without an effective owner, both its major newspapers were soon subject to the process of staff capture. And one of its former journalists, Miranda Devine, who's, who's from a well-known newspaper family, whose father used to be editor of The Australian, uh, she was employed on the Sydney Morning Herald for 10 years from, uh, until 2011, and, she, and you know, a few weeks ago she described her experience. When I arrived at the Herald, she said, it was controlled by a handful of hard-left enforcers who dictated how stories were covered and undermined management at every turn. The worldview of the collective was inarguably left-leaning and anti-business. It was also anti-religion especially anti-Christian, and hostile to bourgeois family values. The tragedy was that Fairfax's core, core audience was a conservative audience. You've never seen a paper more disengaged from its core audience, particularly the age. Now, Fairfax also owns the Australian Financial Review, which is the local equivalent of the Wall Street Journal. In Sydney business circles, the Financial Review has long been a standing joke. Uh, it's commonly derided as the world's only left-wing business daily. <laughs> and the chairman of the Sydney Stock Exchange once famously cancelled his subscription. It, its Friday review section typically reprints one or two long essays from the English socialist magazine New Statesman and, uh, and uh, another reprints from the um, New York Review of Books. And a, a staff writer once told me that this was conceived as an exercise in civilising his term business people. Uh, and, and of course any publication that patronises its readers like that deserves its fate. And the scale of the financial review's market failure can be seen by a comparison with the circulation of the Wall Street Journal, which if you do the maths you find that it sells to 0.67% of the American population every day, while its Australian counterpart sells to only 0.33% of the Australian population. In other words, the financial review, if it served uh, its business leaders, readers properly, it would double its circulation. Now, after almost a decade of control by financial institutions and without an obvious owner, in 2007, the Fairfax organisation was partly reacquired by one of the descendants of the original family, John B. Fairfax, who at the time didn't have a shareholding, but he bought in big, he spent a billion dollars of his own money and assets uh, in, in um, getting a, a, a Fair, fair share of controlling, controlling of the organisation. But um, he lacked the gumption or the insight to retrieve its lost conservative readers. The editorial policy didn't change. Uh, and, and at the same time, his, his financial advisors were blaming the, the country's escalating financial misfortunes on the internet's poaching of its advertising, which was true, but nonetheless, uh, that was the only problem, uh, or the main problem that he, he saw. Last year, 2011, um, John B. Fairfax, who bought in in 2007, decided to bail out of the organisation and he sold his original $1 billion stake for just $189 million. Um, now, there is a, a touch of public just, justice. In July this year, the, the most recent CEO, there's been a whole, whole um, series of them, uh, finally gave retrenchment notices to the recalcitrant journalists um, when the company dismissed, <coughs> dismissed 1,900 of its staff, um, journalists and printers, and decided to outsource its <coughs> sub-editing to New Zealand. If you know the New Zealand language, it's, uh, it's, it's sort, of, sort of like English. Uh, sorry, Ken, about this. <laughs> Um, that are written now in the Sydney Morning Herald every day. Um, 
the leftist collective worked itself out of the job. And the uh, new CEO was, was actually predicting that uh, soon all the firm's print titles will be published only online. Uh, and Fairfax stock, which in 2007, when, um, when John Fairfax bought into it, bought back into it, is now, it was at $5 then, it's now down to 80 cents. Now, I wrote this a few days ago, and, and, and two days ago, uh, a friend of mine who, uh, who writes for Quadrant magazine, which I, I, I edit, um, rang me up and, and, and told me that uh, there'd been a revolutionary change on the, on the Australian Financial Review, because um, there'd, there'd been a new editor, a guy called Michael Stutchbury, who used to work for the Australian, who's a, a good guy, I know him fairly well, uh, but he had been unable to change the culture of the Financial Review. for the, He'd been in the job for a year, but now with the final, with the kind of total retrenchment of virtually all the staff, he's building the thing new. And, and, uh, and, and I believe, uh, this was a woman called Shelley here, I believe what she was telling me because she was asked, she actually rang up to ask me if uh, she could reprint in the Saturday review pages a long article from Quadrant magazine on criticising the university. So, um, so they finally got the message, but it's taken, um, it's taken 20 years for that to happen. And, and most financial analysts of the company still insist on blaming its demise on the internet. In, including some bad purchases of online service companies plus some other unprofitable acquisitions the company made just before the global financial crisis, which soon were pretty well valueless. And, and, and these mistakes are certainly part of the story, but they are a long way from being all of it. And you can see this by com comparing the career of Rupert Murdoch over the same period. Uh, he too took some bad advice about the internet. He invested $800 million in the online service MySpace, which turned out to be a dud. Uh, and um, he also made some risky acquisitions, which, had they not been successful, would have shaken his empire too. And the biggest, of course, was in 2007, he paid $5 billion to buy the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones. But since then, the Wall Street Journal has improved its circulation, thanks to Murdoch's recruitment of some quality journalists and some aggressive marketing designed to steal readers from the New York Times. And as a, as a result, despite the economic downturn, the Wall Street Journal's circulation grew uh, by 5% between 2007 and 2012 to 2.11 million readers a day, which makes it America's biggest selling newspaper. Now, Murdoch is currently in the process of splitting up his empire, and in, in the process he will silo his newspapers into a separate entity. Uh, and some media analysts argue that, um, that Murdoch's newspapers have always been unprofitable, but for sentimental reasons he, su he subsidises them out of, his, out of the profits of his film and television interests. But it seems to me this latest move showed that that anal analysis must be wrong, because um, um, otherwise the, the, the separate print publication um, division will immediately collapse, and, uh, and, and Murdoch obviously <coughs> knows the numbers and knows that they won't um, while ever there are owners like Murdoch who know how to run newspapers, then despite the difficulties thrown at them by the spread of the internet and the contraction of most Western economies, the press will remain a viable business. It might change its technology drastically, and I think it's still possible that um, printing on paper will die out in future decades in favour of electronic tablets. I don't think it's guaranteed, but it's, it's possible. Um, but the underlying business model, that, that, is, that is the one that privileges quality journalism, uh, still seems viable for the foreseeable future. The newspaper market in Britain, where the London newspapers are national newspapers, is different to both the US and Australia, as I said. 
uh, and, and several British newspapers are, are deliberately politically biased, and, uh, but, that, but that allows them to keep rather than lose readers because of this. They appeal to various political constituencies quite directly, the male conservative, the mirror chief, the Labour Party, the Guardian, who criticises everybody from an ultra-left position, etc. Um, and none of the morning newspapers dominate their capital city market the way that um, American and Australian papers do in home cities. So readers who are dissatisfied with um, one London newspaper can have got somewhere else to go. And a crisis in a major English newspaper does not become a crisis for newspaper journalism itself as it does elsewhere. Nonetheless, there's a major threat looming for the British press in the form of the British government. Brian Levison is due to bring down his report in November this year, um, and, and I've been watching you know, the soap opera drama of, of, the, um, of the, the television um, um, inquisition that he's been doing, not only Rupert Murdoch, but it's pretty well anybody else of, of any note in Britain. And, um, and um, uh, Levison is always at pains to say that he does not want to restrict the freedom of the press. I have absolutely no interest in imperiling the freedom of press, the freedom of expression in our free press. Absolutely none, he says. Yet there are two facts that would, from these, trans, from these um, transmissions that would suggest otherwise. First, he's made it clear that he thinks the media have too much power to influence politics and the government should set up a regulatory system to, to handle this. And second, the regulatory model, he says, most impresses him is the, that governing the BBC. Uh, it, it, and I don't know if you, if you saw his personal interrogation. Maybe most of the um, broadcasts that um, Mr. Jay, the barrister, does the questions. But, but um, when, when Tony Blair was up, Levison got frustrated with the pace of the thing, and so it's, and you know had a long discussion on camera with Tony Blair himself. And um, Levison said, "I'm struck by the fact that what the BBC does is covered by quite different rules to what the Guardian or News International does, or Associated Newspapers do." And yet you can look at their websites and on the face of it, they're doing similar things. Now you realise what that um, what was implying and went on to say, no, no, I'm not suggesting that the press should be made to be, become impartial. But um, given that the BBC Charter itself requires it to ensure that controversial subjects are treated with accuracy and impartiality, that appears to be precisely what his remarks were suggesting. Now, it is right, I think, that publicly funded broadcasters and media outlets should be regulated for impartiality and accuracy. They're paid for by all citizens and they have a responsibility to serve them all, whatever their political view. And the fact that both the BBC and the ABC in my country fail to live up to their responsibilities in this regard does not negate their moral and legal obligations to do so. But if a newspaper that's funded entirely by sales and advertising is politically biased, that is none of the government's business. If would-be buyers of the paper don't like what they're offered, they can go somewhere else. Uh, the right of the independent press to say what it likes, to support whoever it pleases, and to criticise anyone who takes their fancy should, in a truly liberal society, have nothing to do with the government. And the, the issue that Levison is obviously wrestling with is that of what, what do you do when newspapers tell lies and deceive their, their, their um, readers? Um, which the phone hacking scandal and the question of close ties between newspaper proprietors and politicians opened up, which is why he was appointed. And in his ruminations during the hearings, Levison has been asking, shouldn't the Parliament and the law provide some degree of protection for consumers and step in when the product they buy is defective? <coughs> However, excuse me, 
the state or the government, whichever party holds office, is never a disinterested party in these matters. It's a big, it's a big player in the game of news reporting with big interests at stake for the pursuit of its own power and it can be relied upon to always put its own interests before those of the public. The state is also the wrong instrument to rectify the faults of the press. In the case of lies and deception, the ultimate arbiter will always be the readers. In, in fact, uh, a, a free press has some powerful built-in protections against blatant dishonesty. Almost all people, whatever their predilections, come to the daily press looking for reliable information. And as Deepak um, reminded us in market economies, um, what business people are interested in is repeat business. Um, not just you can't, you can't you can rip people off once, but they never come back again. You have to provide reliable information to newspaper purchases on a daily basis because that's basically what they're after. And newspapers that um, engage in lies and du duplicity jeopardise the core value of their brand. If there is a competitive market, then their competitors will expose them. If there is a monopoly market, like the only paper in town, which is the case in Australia and many, many, New York, many American cities, um, consumers will simply refuse to buy the product. And the fate of the New York Times and the Boston Globe and the Fairfax Press is a far more effective punishment than anything Levison himself could recommend the state to do. Yet we're being asked to believe that the British press has generated a crisis in democracy that warrants drastic action by the state. In fact, in fact if, you, if you listen to what Tony Blair said to Levison, the crisis has spread far beyond Britain itself. Uh, I mean, look, I think it's a very different task, he said, and I think some of these questions are difficult, not just for our country, by the way, but as I say, I think this is a debate that increasingly will take place, certainly around the democratic world, as to how you deal with these questions, unquote. In Australia, the report of the government inquiry, which was appointed um, as sort of an invitation of, of David Cameron's decision to set up the Levison inquiry, um, has already delivered its verdict on newspaper regulation. And let me finish today by talking about this as because it gives possibly the worst case scenario of what Levison himself might recommend. The head of the Australian inquiry, a former judge named Ray Finkelstein, recommended the establishment of the government super regulator, which he called the News Media Council, to enforce standards. And the standards that would be enforced would be those it defined itself. Uh, and if complaints were made about reporting and then after due process, editors and, the editors and journalists found guilty refused to recant, they would face fines and if they persisted, imprisonment. Um, imprisonment for contempt of court, that's, um, you know, for not apologising and doing things. But I mean, stand, if you stand by your guns, you, the ultimate threat is to go to jail. Now, so far, the Gillard Labor government uh, has not indicated whether it will accept these recommendations, and many in the party would like to because, especially Rupert Murdoch is, um, is more despised by the Australian left than even the British uh, left. Uh, and the, the head of the Greens political party calls Murdoch um, newspapers a hate media. But the same figures in the Labor Party would be worried about the timing of a, this sort of conflict in the lead-up to an election which must be held by about this time next year. In the Australian inquiry, it's worth noting that the strongest allies the chairman found were academics in media studies. Uh, they, sent him, they sent him submissions, they, they were witnesses at his hearings, they provided him with research, and they wrote several lengthy passages of his report. And in return, the, the final report proposed that 
Appointments to the new News Media Council would be decided by a committee of three academics nominated by the universities, ostensibly to keep it at arm's length. Now, now this, this recommendation is a bad joke. It would elevate to a position of power the one group of people most jealous of and most hostile towards real journalists. It's virtually impossible to find three academics in this field who are genuinely independent. Indeed, it's almost impossible to find three who are not committed firmly to the left side of politics. The academic literature in the field, which these days is strongly influenced by the writings of the German neo-Marxist Jürgen Habermas, is essentially a political critique designed to show the capitalist media is at fault whenever it fails to support the left's own view of the world. <laughs> and if academics from this field ever gained the position Finkelstein envisages, they would ensure his council was composed of people exactly like themselves. Now, Finkelstein recommended that publishers and internet sites that generate certain specified volumes of readership and traffic would be subject to the dictates of this news media council. And as it happens, Quadrant magazine comes well within his scope. So, <laughs> for better or worse, I've gone on record as saying that if this scheme is ever implemented, our organisation would, would feel compelled to, be, to defend the tradition of press freedom by engaging in civil disobedience. We would, we would not recognise the News Media Council's authority, we would not observe its restrictions, and we would not obey its instructions, whatever the price. You're going to jail, then. Yes, where do you want us to send the press? <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> I'll send you a cake with a fire in it. when Margaret Thatcher was, um, was um, you know, shutting down the coal mines and the reporter said to him, but you, if, if these strikes are now illegal, you'll go to jail. And I thought he responded with much grace. He said, tell the warden I prefer my porridge with salt. Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so far I, I haven't um, uh, drawn any, any, any support. Uh, uh, no other publishers have, have, have said the same thing. Um, but many, I think, are still in a state of shock from these, these recommendations. You know, the, I mean, the, the Australian has campaigned strongly against it. Um, uh, but um, I, I think many of, of them would be very surprised that um, if, if such a, a thing as a news media council was ever implemented. My surprise, however, was that, if, that such a thing was even recommended in the first place. I think it's very telling about the assumptions for an expanded role of the state and about the indifference towards traditional liberties now taken for granted among our intellectual and political classes. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Uh, your uh, your uh, comment about the um, um, media studies reminds me that Kingsley Amos once uh, once said that the word workshop seems to sort of <laughs> yeah. su sum up so much that was wrong with the 20th century. I think actually it's been superseded now by studies, the words. If you see the women's studies, black studies, they're all, they're all terrible. Yeah. So yeah. Anything any new studies, anything they can really post. Yeah, yeah. 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 Inherently corrupt. Right. <laughs> uh, I guess Ken and I think Kevin. words are crucial here. Justice, I think the word missing from yes. Kevin's yes. table yeah. is justice. Yeah. So, in attempting to explain why these media organizations are corrupt, the word missing was critical. Um, Keith and I were both brought up in a philosophy department which said philosophy is essentially critical, which is exactly true, it is. But in the 1960s, critical got entangled with socially critical with rejecting the society we live in. And therefore, um, 
people picked up the notion that if you were patriotic or in favor of conservative values or anything of that sort, you were being uncritical. So all of these people have, I think, a self-esteem um, created by the notion that they're being frightfully critical. Yeah, absolutely. The thing I took away from this uh, excellent uh, speech was um, quite how ideologically committed the left actually must be to prefer to constantly make their points rather than um, take on new readers and attain profitability. If you are Mr. Salzberger and you are willing to see your share price drop from $54 to, what was it, $7.80, you are, um, and yet you still keep you cleave to this uh, belief that um, that you must still churn out this politically correct left-wing rubbish. It just it just shows how driven the, uh, the, the you know our ideological opponents are. It's a high price to pay, but at least he's on the side of virtue, and he knows that. <laughs> and, and this is the other thing, of course, about the New York Times is they refuse to accept publicly that they are biased in any way whatsoever. That's the that, that's a that's a key element to their. I wonder if they refuse it or they can't actually see it. Well, there's whichever it is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so a point you offered, actually. Uh, I mean, I agree with almost everything you said, but at one point you did offer a left-wing comment. It wasn't Mrs. Thatcher that shut the coal mines. It was the unions that went on strike. <laughs> oh, and, uh, yeah. This is a very, yeah, a very yeah, important yeah. way. The way in which that is now presented as Mrs. Thatcher shutting them down is a, is a quite interesting role. You're absolutely right on media studies. I don't agree with the automatic reflex action in which everybody seems to assume that all academics are on the left. I was thinking to myself as you were saying that well most engineers, biosciences and all the rest of them would be rather surprised at that but I certainly agree with you about media studies people, they are almost universally on the left one small thing I was just going to say you reminded me um, I'm talking about losing their conservative readership I think it was Roger Ailes who described Fox's success as being the discoverer of a niche market called half the American public (laughs) 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 an interesting interesting newspaper news story there from earlier in the week I don't know if you saw this Uh, Village Voice um, terribly terribly left wing uh, countercultural newspaper um, also operates a website called Backpage.com and on Backpage it's sort of as it used to be on the Backpage of the Village Voice which are mostly ads for prostitution and it's always been a source of uh, stress between this you know, sort of progressive politically committed newspaper being in the prostitution business and they're feminists on staff you know, and sex workers and people don't like you know, human trafficking and that sort of thing so it was announced earlier in the week that they would be separating the businesses and there's a new group Composed of editors and staff at the Village Voice, which is actually buying the newspaper, which will be separated from Backpage. And the way the story was reported was that you know, they'll be separating. But the way I read it was the guys who actually understand their business decide we're going to stay in the prostitution business. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can have a newspaper. <laughs> well, I just wanted to add something too. You um, um, raised the uh, the idea of virtue, and I think that that's really very central to uh, New York Times culture in, in particular in some troubling ways. But I wanted to uh, just kind of wave the flag, uh, flag very uh, quickly for the new criterion and for Roger and Hilton. Um, you know, this uh, renovation of the culture pages of the Wall Street Journal was led largely by former editors of the new criterion, and for uh, um, a decade or so, Hilton was one of the great uh, outspoken critics of uh, the New York Times um, um, political and, and cultural coverage, and it was the leftward shift of the Times that I think um, really led to Hilton leaving the paper and, and founding the new criterion. So, but this idea of, of virtue, and you know, when they when they do um, address 
political bias in the paper. It's in this really um, uh, kind of uh, uh, nauseating way of this, the, the public editor. Uh, how, is there anything more navel-gazing than to have someone in your own pages say, well, you guys aren't really doing the best job you could, and all that stuff, we? So, they, so it often falls to the public editor to take on you know, questions of political bias. But of course, he's employed by the paper, and it's just it's so kind of smarmy and inside. Um, but, and, but that does allow them to feel the, the virtuous in that they are self-critiquing and so on, and that's supposed to kind of help put them back on, on track. But an even more troubling, I think, instance of this kind of sense of virtue with the paper um, is that you can't uh, fire people there very easily, especially union employees. Uh, and the feeling is within the times that once you're there, if you're not doing well at your job, they'll find another department that will have you. And so it's quite possible to fail upwards at the times. And it's that sort of thing, I think, that contributed to the Jason Blair phenomenon, where, you know, you're not doing a good job. Well, that's all right. We'll find somebody else who, you know, will, uh, will, will be your boss and give you uh, something to do. And uh, just kind of, you know, rather than getting pushed out because you're, you're, you're not uh, working out, they, they advance you. And, um, and, and again, it's this kind of sense of, of virtue that can lead to... You know, I mean, that was a real catastrophe. I'm not sure everybody knows about Jason Blair. So well, explain uh, briefly what he was. It was, a, it was very much like you know reporting on uh, this hunt that, that exactly. never happened because he you know he reported uh, on, on events um, without actually traveling to the places and he'd go to the movies and then he'd kind of write the story. And um, there, there was also the complication of his skin color. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> no. Well, again, this is part of this. You know, they were I think the time for the pains to keep him and to you know make sure that. You know, that he was on staff because for diversity reasons, uh, certainly. Um, but that kind of, I mean, and so that kind of brought down Hal Raines. And I think that was probably the, la- the paper's last, you know, when they were last positioned to make a bid for the Times being a national newspaper. That was certainly on Hal Raines' agenda. And when he was basically fired, um, that was it. They were no longer going to be viably a national paper. And, uh, and, and, they, and they clearly don't want to be, as you pointed out. They are surrounded by friends in New York, and they feel that they don't need to go far outside of that. Right, the Pauline Kale phenomenon. Michael? Yeah, first of minor points. Uh, clearly, the Australian Financial Review's Friday review section isn't all bad since they buy three pieces a month from Standpoint every month. Is he going to visit you in jail? Mm-hmm. Is he going to visit you in jail? We're all going to visit him. But no, but, but, so, sorry, no, yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah. There's a wider point, which is that the the model of the model you were presenting doesn't work particularly well for the UK press because you do have a very partisan press, and you. But, but all the papers across the board, regardless of their politics, have had dramatic falls in circulation. The Guardian had a dramatic fall in circulation, but so has the Telegraph, so has, they all have. I mean, it, there isn't a, much as you'd like, much as one might like it, there isn't any pattern that conservative papers have lost less of their circulation than others have. The Daily Mail might have lost a bit less of its circulation than most other papers, but that, that probably not... That's not. It doesn't have its competitor anyway, which has dropped more. Is also conservative, the the Express. So I don't think in the UK there is a sort of clear pattern of conservative, base. and they're all. And it doesn't. And it doesn't help them with their profitability. In that all Britain's broadsheets are loss making and 
very substantially loss making. The Guardian figures are the clearest figures because they get, I mean, they, they're published independently separately from, and they, they're losing 70 million a year, which they used to cross subsidise with local, local papers and auto trader. But the local papers have all started losing. The local papers are no longer profitable, which they own, because the market for local newspapers is totally, I mean, the advertising market for them has totally collapsed and they're in a dire state, so they can't really cross subsidise. So in the long run, um, because the Guardian's got a self-owned, self-owned model, with, but in the long run, that's not. It, it can't. It needs to do something. It can't. It can keep losing seventy million for a while. But S- seven zero or seven zero. Wow. So we, we must stop reading Auto Trader. That's the trick. Auto Trader. Yes, exactly. But the, but I mean, if you look at clearly the time, they're all significantly loss-making, and if you look at, particularly if you look over time, the fall in their circulation is, I mean, is dramatic. Mm-hmm. And it also applies to, uh, to magazines. I mean, our circulation is going up, but if you look at the Spectator, for, uh, Stan Paul started in 2008, and uh, recently looked at comparative figures from 2008. If you look at the Spectator, its sales have fallen by one-third since 2008. Mm-hmm. The New wow. Statesman has fallen by half. Prospect, which is our main rival, has halved since 2008. So there isn't there, there isn't really a pattern that you could say that. And how many people are hitting your websites? This is the internet that's doing it, obviously. Yeah. How many people are hitting? The Daily Mail has one of the most heavily hit yeah. websites in the world. Yeah. Isn't yeah. It? The, the Guardian, the Mail beats the Guardian. Right. But oh. the Mail, if you look at the Mail websites, people aren't going at it. Aren't going to the website for political content. No. Yeah, the websites all select. The political content is on the website, yeah. but it'll take you a while to get there. The front page is all celebrity. Right. Do you think no. this is to do with the BBC offering a lot of free, uh, unfair competition, as it were, by offering think, yeah. on the internet? Possibly. And the Right Mind section of the Mail website, which Sun Heffer runs, which is where all their comment pieces are coming, they're considering closing down. Right. So, I mean, they don't think that... I mean, they're, they're not... Their, their market isn't sort of yeah. Uh, right. I'm just coming on that, Michael. Um, I, I didn't do any analysis of advertising trends, um, and, 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 the, and the media, is, is, news media, has always been funded, you know, 78 percent by advertising, um, and advertising, the loss of advertising is is uh, the, the critical factor in the economics of this. Um, it's not just press circulation, but the, the big problem is that. But circulation I, leads to lower advertising rates. So. Uh, well, sometimes, as I, I argued in, in the 70s and 80s, cir- um, circulation, in, in fact, le- a more quality audience led to higher advertising rates. Yeah. That's um, no, but I mean, in the UK, you've got falling circulation, which means the attractiveness to advertisers. Of okay, depends on who on, on, where, on where it falls back yeah. to. I mean, there was, this, there was that old story about um, Murdoch in uh, with, with the New York Post, was the afternoon paper he had, mm-hmm. and he's and, and the advertising sales that would go to Macy's and they'd say, Mr. Miller, we don't want to advertise with you. Your, your readers are our shoplifters. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> he bought a newspaper with a very low demographic... But I just want to make a point about, uh, about um, a- advertising on the internet. Uh, there, 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 is a lot of, there is a shift underway. People do read things electronically rather than print. There's, there's no question about that. The problem for the finances of, of newspapers is... Um, is getting money uh, from the advertising that's on the internet. Uh, Google gets a lion's share of it. And, um, I mean, you know, on, on our little publication, we get hundreds of dollars a year from um, Google. <laughs> our, our online site is, is, is in the top 10% of Australia. 
up all Australian websites. Mm. And yet all we get is a few hundred dollars, not thousands, a hundred <laughs> dollars a year from Google because you know we, we let them do ads. And, and it seems to me my, the, that the, it's um, it's not the question of whether news will stay in print and go to electronics. And I don't really think that matters in, in the scheme of things. It's whether um, this huge monopoly called Google is going to survive as it is. The only thing I can see that will change that is in fact competition. Uh, uh, alternative search engines, alternative ways of... It seems to me there's a huge market gap there for people to take on Google and offer publishers who stick with them um, uh, good, much better advertising rights. And, yeah. but I think that is one thing that is allowing print to hang in as strongly as it is because when you have a print you know, magazine or, or, or newspaper, you have real estate. You can point to the back of the New York Times book review every week and Bowman Rare Books has taken out a full page. They own it. You can look for them there. That's where you'll find them. When you go on the web, you don't know where they'll be. And I think that that's what they haven't solved yet is how do we, you know, how do we create kind of real estate, you know, advertising real estate on the website that people that's going to have that same kind of value. And it's to the point now where the New York Times will launch a whole magazine just because they can fill it with advertising. Mm-hmm. And as soon as that advertising dries up, they'll fire that editor and move them around uh, and stop publishing that, that magazine uh, because there's, there's just a lot of uh, money to be made in, in, you know, still in print and advertising. And I think that, that they haven't figured that out on the web. Uh, and until they do, I think the web is going to be held back. Yeah, that's a good point. So D- David, John, and Sai. At least the stronger pressure, um, uh, as the economic one, it seems to me, is is the attack on freedom of expression. Um, I think the Letters and Inquiry, which you referred to, is actually very sinister. And what, what, what it's aiming at is finding some justification for putting curbs on freedom of expression. Yeah. And there are enormous subterranean pressures in this country for that. The Muslim, every Muslim body in this yeah. country, of which there are a great many, is, is lobbying for that. Um, they, they, they want us to stop having freedom of expression anything to do with the Muslim community. And um, that is reproduced at the United Nations by the Istanbul proceedings uh, and so on. And I think that ought to concern us much more because um, you see already in the United States a midnight raid on this fellow who made a, this little movie thing. That's an extraordinary thing to happen. Yes, um, he, yes he, was, he was arrested yesterday. And, and, was um, he really? He was arrested. Yes. On the, on, but what about the First Amendment? What? That makes a bad movie. <laughs> 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 Is related to the film. Now, it'd be interesting to see how they. Well, because he was he was he was, he was prohibited from using the internet, and he, he uploaded the movie, oh, the video, uh, by using a computer. Sounds like mail fraud. That's dumb. But I mean, here you have a chap who gets it at midnight, and then literally, in brown-shirted sheriff show up at his house at midnight, and bundle him away to talk to him, and then now he's arrested. And he's, his, uh, the, the, we don't know exactly what it was because they've sealed, they've sealed, uh, uh, you know, his uh, uh, pr- right. probation uh, violation. But you see, you see, you see attacks uh, on the French uh, magazine head of publishing whatever it published about the Muslims. You see an Italian uh, editor of your journal has been sent to prison. Um, really? Yes. For Lord. Lord, in this case. They, they, he didn't write the article, but your journal printed an article which was thought to be... Um, uh, uh, that's right. 
he's got he's, he's got a year in prison for this. Um, there are something that um, obviously this doesn't um, concern us quite so much, but there are um, over a hundred journalists in prison in Turkey. Yeah. Turkey's far and away the leading um, incarceration of journalists, but that is because it's actually moving into the um, Islamic world. Thoroughly, but I think this ought to concern us quite as much as, uh, as the economics of the, of the newspaper world. Also, the death threats that Tom Holland's been getting. Um, I don't know if you yeah, follow yeah, this at all. You know, a very, very serious, scholarly, impressive, fully footnoted, well, incredibly well-researched, serious history of uh, Islam. And he had, is, was contemplating going into hiding. It's been on the back of the TV program. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the yeah. Yale University Press. Right, you wrote about that a lot. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, 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 the Yale published a book of, about the Danish cartoons, and Yale, at the very last minute, <laughs> refused to publish. Uh, include the cartoons. Uh, it was, it, I mean, really. Well, what about the Pakistani minister who offers $100,000? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think his property in England ought to be sequestrated. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know what he has for He's got a property here, yeah, which he comes and enjoys in six months a year. Yes. Well, I want to mention two points. One is the. Um, I on one point, I differ with Michael's sort of account of the British press. I think he's generally right. But I think he understates the importance of the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail um, is, it seems to me, much better edited. Um, and has a much better grasp of its audience in the way that mm. Keith was describing yeah. the relationship between the paper and its audience than any other paper. And that, and that uh, um, contact with its audience is that it realizes that its audience is a conservative one, it's suburban, it's reasonable, but it's patriotic, and also it gets very angry about such issues as householders being sent to prison for defending themselves against burglars, and it will really go to town on that. That's why it's not just, that's why it has, a, a, I think, a slightly more successful um, than other papers, and secondly, why it's absolutely hated by the intelligentsia, much more than the Telegraph or the Times or the Murdoch Press, they hate the Daily Mail. In fact, I have a, a close friend who is a brilliant woman journalist, and, and we always joke we have a deal. Um, she won't mention any of the shameful details of my private life she knows, and in return, I won't tell people that her favorite newspaper is the this paper, and they hate it precisely because it's, it's not a tabloid, it's a kind of middle market tabloid in a sense, um, but it sustains conservative values in a way that the conservative party has long abandoned any attempt to do, and it gives the, its audience the kind of intellectual ammunition uh, that enables them to keep it. Now, the second point I want to make relates to the media studies. You know, um, the, the case for controlling and regulating media studies departments from the standpoint of impartiality and so on is far greater than <laughs> 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 So I think we should sort of, if this thing gets... Okay, let's do, let's extend this to media studies. Mm, let's, yeah. um, and let's have a group of journalists yeah. who will appoint the media studies professors <laughs> and the regulators and so on and so forth. Because it does, it does really illustrate dramatically the difference of attitude towards liberty on the part of the right and the left and on the part of journalism in general and, and, the, and the critics of journalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry. The, uh, the military as a uh, pillar of liberty is, is 
often pilloried by the, by the press. Um, and I can think of a number of recent, recent examples, but it's a mixture of liberal bias, profound ignorance, and, and uh, condescension. Uh, and uh, I think of a recent example in which the military itself is not, uh, is not innocent, uh, but ignorant. And this is a true story. A knock on the door of General Stanley McChrystal uh, two summers ago. Oh, yeah. And it's his aide-de-camp saying, uh, there's a reporter outside who would like to talk to you. Mm -hmm. And McChrystal says, where's he from? Rolling Stone. McChrystal, <laughs> send him in. <laughs> Stan Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> small military establishment now, as you know, it's an all-volunteer force, and uh, there's virtually nobody uh, who is a journalist who knows anything at all about the military, with a few wonderful exceptions, and so we're, we have a rough time that way. Yeah. That was a mistake. He's now a professor at Yale. <laughs> really? If you can believe it. The journalist or the... <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. He, he teaches in the department of, uh, it's kind of a sub-department of history called Strategy, run by John Gaddis and Matt oh, yeah. yeah. And that particular field of study, military history, military affairs, in most good American universities, uh, uh, function under a disguise. They're called strategy or some other kind of uh, thing like that. Sort of a conservative equivalent of studies. Right. So that's right. Yeah. In the center. Right. Yeah. Well, just as a footnote to that, I mean, the one uh, journalist who really did understand military matters in, in this country was the late John Keegan, yeah, yeah, yeah. who uh, who is much missed. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. there is nobody really to replace him, and yeah. he was a rare, rare exception. He was somebody a, he was who, who devoted. Yeah. as much care and, and uh, attention and, and erudition uh, to the reporting of, of military matters as, as of course he did in his wonderful books. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to make one sort of slightly paradoxical point. I think it's not necessarily a sign that the press is in bad health when people go to prison. Uh, I mean there's, there's a long history of that you know, all through the 17th and 18th and even 19th centuries, editors had to go to prison uh, uh, for all sorts of things, even just reporting what was happening in Parliament, you know, in this country. And uh, sometimes it needs something like that to draw attention to a, a really serious abuse. And I think if the state goes down that road of imprisoning editors and uh, reporters, uh, they will regret it. Um, you know, I think the public deep down knows that, uh, you know, as which great American statesman was it that said that, you know, it was. Uh, given the choice between Jefferson, uh, Jefferson is, is the man I'm thinking of. Isn't it? You know, the, the, the fourth estate, you know, the, the freedom of the press is the most important freedom because all the others, to some extent, depend upon it. Uh, so, the, and one footnote about about the media studies departments. One of the most sinister things about these things is that they now control the graduates who go into yeah. journalism. Yeah. You know, everybody now who wants a career in journalism has to go to one of these university departments, mm -hmm. and there they can be indoctrinated. And uh, only those who share the assumptions of the media professors uh, is allowed to be a reporter. Mm -hmm. That's a disaster. And, and also, the universities get um, uh, editors from... Well, they used to, this, this UT, university Technology Sydney used to get um, people from the Sydney Morning Herald um, who were going to employ their graduates to come in and give guest lectures and answer questions in seminars and have parties and screw the girls, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, and and um, literally, literally, that's, that's, you know, true. Um, and, and, and so... Wait a minute, that is true. <laughs> 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 
energy relationship. But, 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 the, but the, the good thing about it is it was ultimately, ultimately a disaster. It, um, that, that they were in a very powerful position, but they um, destroyed what they had because um, they, were, they broke the, hard, the, the, the ethical rules of the game. Kevin, and then we should uh, move on to Andy. I was going to say, there is one happy exception to that. When I was in college, and I was applying for an internship at the Wall Street Journal, and I went in to interview, and the fellow asked me the first question, are you a journalism major? I said, no. I said, congratulations, you made it past the first round. <laughs> but yeah. It's only a Murdoch paper that would do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Listen, that was pre-Murdoch, though, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well. okay. 